Heavenly Father, um, I know there's a lot of history between Micah and, and us. There's a lot of years there. Um, but we know that your word is eternal. And we trust that sitting at your feet and studying what you have to say to us and listening uh, and picturing our life and understanding how what you say has to do with our life is an important exercise, a life-changing exercise. And I pray, Father, that you would do us the favor of taking all of the things that um, we brought into this room with us that are occupying our heart, that are gnawing at our insides, and I pray that you would turn your scripture towards them. That your spirit would work upon us from the inside out and change us. And make us people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly before you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So there's this moving serious piece of cinema called Happy Gilmore. (laughs) Beautiful piece of film. Um, Happy, played by Adam Sandler, discovers that he's bad at hockey, but he's good at golf. So he knows he can really drive the ball. Okay, he can drive that golf ball, but he's really terrible at putting. Okay, so he's great in the tee, but terrible in the green. So he decides to get some coaching from a former golf pro. Ready for his name? Chubbs Peterson. Had to look that one up. Chubbs Peterson, who has lost one hand from an alligator and is a little bit odd, his odd hard luck these days. He's got a wooden hand. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but Chubbs gives Happy some great advice. When Happy gets frustrated with putting, which oftentimes happens, Chubbs tells him to imagine his happy place. Okay, happy Gilmore, happy place. Okay. So the scene cuts to Adam Sandler that is happy, scrunching up his eyes and picturing his happy place. Then we see Sandler's happy place. Cue the inspirational Enya Hart music in the background. Okay, moving louder and louder. Then Happy's girlfriend in lingerie carrying two pitchers of beer to bed. His poor grandmother... Hitting, uh, hitting it big time at the slot machine and having thousands of coins pour into her lap. And then, of course, a midget riding a tricycle with a cowboy hat and cowhide chaps because that's the happy place. <laughs> the reason we're talking about Happy Gilmore in the middle of this sermon is that if I were to ask you to imagine the kingdom of God, it probably feels like Chubby, or Chubbs, excuse me, asking <laughs> Chubbs, asking Happy to, to imagine his happy place. So if I were to ask you to imagine the kingdom of God right here, right now, it would probably feel like Chubbs asking Happy to imagine his happy place. And not surprisingly, our kingdom, our picture of the kingdom of God looks an awful lot like Adam, Sanders, Adam Sandler's happy place. Perhaps minus the gambling and the beer and the lingerie. But still, it's mostly filled with things that make us happy. Images of personal wishes and desires come true. Here's what I'm driving at. Often in the eyes of our hearts, God's kingdom looks more like our kingdom than anything else. In the eyes of our hearts, God's kingdom looks more like our kingdom than anything else. Perhaps this is why when I read blogs or hear sermons about the kingdom this and the kingdom that and kingdom-minded and kingdom incarnational and kingdom missional and all sorts of other things, 
What do they mean? What do I mean when people say the kingdom? That's what's so frustrating. What are we trying to get at? Being kingdom-minded is no earthly good unless it means more than a few of my favorite things. Okay? Unless kingdom-mindedness means more than a few of my favorite things in heaven, like an ice cream bar and a family reunion that turns into a family Olympics, we really need to get beyond those things. This is why I'm thankful for our passage tonight so we don't get stuck in family Olympics in heaven. Okay? I'm thankful for our passage, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, because it gives us a clear picture of the kingdom of heaven. What does this biblical phrase mean? What does it look like? How do we long for the kingdom of God? How do we long for and participate in the kingdom of God? Those are just some of the questions that Micah chapter 6 is addressing. But let me summarize what, it's, what the whole chapter is getting at, or what these first eight verses of the chapter are getting at, in one sentence. Here's one sentence. The kingdom of God looks like our justice, mercy, and humility motivated by God's mercy, justice, and humility. Okay? So the kingdom of God looks like our justice, mercy, and humility motivated by God's rescue. Okay? Does everyone catch that? Let me say it again in different words. God rescues us from ourselves to live for others by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Micah gives us this deep and permanent picture of the kingdom of God in two parts. First, verses 1 through 5, we see the motivation of God's kingdom. That is, why, that is, why do we love others and love God? Okay? Verses 6 through 8, we see the ethic of God's kingdom. That is, how do we love others and love God? Okay, so let me recap. Verses 1 through 5, motivation of God's kingdom. The why question. Okay? Verses 6 through 8, the ethic of the kingdom of God. The how question. Let me begin with verses 1 through 5. Studying why should we do the kingdom of loves, or the kingdom of God's love. Okay? First five verses, God is launching a legal case against the Israelites. I don't know if you caught that. But this is in Hebrew, ancient Near Eastern literary style called a reeb or a reeve. Okay? Depending on a thing called the dagesh. Alright? Very important detail. Okay. In modern American terms, let me give you some sort of analogy. Basically, what's going on in these first few verses is like the second half of every Law and Order episode. You know how the first half, the investigators like hit the street and try to get the, the data and the facts? But the second half, it's always in the courtroom. There's always a prosecutor going to town on somebody. That's kind of the second part of what exactly is going on in this passage. The prosecutor, God, is going to town on us. Okay, He's prosecuting us. And we see this trial play out in verses 1 and 2 as God sets the courtroom scene. Verse 1, God summons his people, ancient Israel, the modern day church, RUF, to a court appearance to defend ourselves. Verse 2, God sets his jury. Do you know what his jury is? The mountains. Okay, the mountains. How? What in the world? Mountains? Because he's talking about such big, deep, spiritual matters that he has to have something eternal to represent him. Okay? Or close to eternal because it's created. But he also has to have something that is witnessed 
all of the transgressions, all the sins of ancient Israel from its very beginning till now. And who better but the mountains? Okay? Then in verse, verses 3 through 5, God makes his case against his people. We have not responded with faithful love to his faith and his love. But notice this. Even in the middle of God getting prosecutorial, of God's prosecution, you see, God can't help but plead with us. Look at verse 3 with me. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I want you to picture this for a second. Think about law and order. It's as if the prosecuting attorney turns sharply to the defendant in the witness stand and marches towards them, towards us. But instead of shouting a stream of accusations, instead of raising her voice in a scream of, uh, of opposition, instead of wagging her finger or putting her fists on her hip and scowling at us, imagine that she hikes up her skirt of her peach power suit, gets on her knees, her stocking knees, and crawls to the witness stand, clenching her fists, her hands together, weeping and crying out about how we don't care about her. That's what God is doing in the scene. It's supposed to feel awkward. Do you get that? It's jarring. Because there we are bracing ourselves for a verbal spanking. And all of a sudden God instead, the Lord of everything that is, starts to beg before us. Rehearses his love to us over and over again. But please don't miss this in your surprise. God just isn't giving us a history lesson. God is proving his love through history. It's not a history lesson. God's proving his love through history. And he chooses the Exodus, the story from the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Joshua, to use because it's dramatic and because it's the story of God's rescue. Every other story Every other individual act of God's salvation points back in some way to that ultimate story of redemption, that ultimate story of salvation. It's the model for all of us who believe in Jesus, even our own individual moments of salvation. So we should see ourselves spiritually in the physical story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, from our slavery, from our spiritual slavery to sin, all the way to how the way that God sustains us in the dry and hard spiritual places with leaders and with protection. And then all the way finally to the hope of a secure home in heavenly Canaan. And that's what verses 4 through 5 are doing. They're telling the story of our spiritual lives through telling the story of Israel's spiritual life. Okay? But even with the love of God traced all the way through history, the takeaway of verses 1 through 5 is that most of us, most of the time, are weary of God. That's his complaint, that we're weary of God. Why? How are we missing the motive of the kingdom? How are we missing what the kingdom is all about? That is, the gratitude for God's rescue. How are we missing that? Let me suggest two ways by giving you two reasons with two metaphors. 
Okay? Okay, so two ways, two reasons, two metaphors. Okay? First way that we miss the whole point, the way that we get weary of God. Okay? Some of us see God's exodus rescue of us as our rescue of ourselves. Some of us see God's rescue of us as our rescue of ourselves. Let me explain by using an analogy that's somewhat familiar to some of you. Okay? Imagine you're drowning in the middle of a lake. Okay? Your legs are broken. You're weighed down by something so heavy that you can only already sink to the bottom. There your hands are flailing in the water, and all of a sudden you feel a rope and close around your wrists. It jerks you up, and it pulls you to the surface, and it carries you all the way across to the shore. And there you are choking up water, rolling around, gasping for air, and you look up, and you see a man with coils of rope around his feet, holding on the end of the rope and smiling at you. Here's my question. What do you kiss? Who do you thank at that moment and forevermore? Do you kneel down and kiss the rope and thank your hands and your wrists? Do you do that? Or, rather, do you kiss the man's feet and thank him fiercely? The answer is the latter. Okay? The second one. Why? Here's the deal. If you think that Christianity and the Bible is just one big, wearisome burden, it may be because your heart is constantly busy thanking and testing the strength of the rope of your faith. It may be that you're having faith in faith. But, instead, perhaps we should be kissing our rescuer's feet and having faith in Jesus. Second point, second time, some of us are busy seeing, are so busy seeing our sin that we don't see rescue from it. So if the first reason is that some of us think we're rescuing ourselves, the second reason that we miss the gratitude of God, of his rescue for us, is that we're so busy seeing our sin that we don't see our rescue from it. Another analogy. Don't we love these? Okay. Here's a story I heard from a friend of mine, Patrick. He once told me about, he said, imagine a poor graduate student, okay, pedaling along on a real beat up, bent out of shape bike on a hot St. Louis day. Okay? And all of a sudden this stretch Hummer comes alongside him and parks. And it kind of like, you know, the tinted window goes down. And he sees a face that's familiar. And sure enough, it's his favorite baseball player in all the world, Albert Pujols. Okay? <laughs> And Pujols invites the student to come along for a ride. Hey, jump on in to my stretch Hummer. Okay? And the student asks, can I bring my bike? Because I don't want to leave it. And he says, sure. Come on, bring your bike in here. We've got plenty of room. And so the student climbs in with his bike and proceeds for the next two hours of, of joyriding across St. Louis to explain and apologize for every scratch, for every nick, for every dent on his bike. In fact, he's so busy obsessing over the damage of his bike that he fails to appreciate the joys of riding in a stretch Hummer. He fails to appreciate the joys of being right next to his idol, Albert Pujols. There Pujols is asking him questions, making comments, giving him compliments. And he misses the opportunity to know Pujols as a friend. Here's my question for us. Are we missing the joys of salvation? Are we missing the joys of Jesus 
Because we're too busy cataloging our sins. Do you realize that Jesus died not so that we could focus on our sin, but so that we could focus on Him first and foremost? Perhaps God does feel like a weary burden if all of our time with Him is spent fixating on the explanations for and apologies behind all the scratches on our soul. Okay. If verses four, if verses one through five have shown us that gratitude for God's rescue is the motivation of God's kingdom, verses six through eight show us that justice, mercy, and humility are the ethical direction of God's kingdom, of what it looks like to love. But before we unpack justice, mercy, and humility, let's look at how God through Micah leads us there. Remember, God put us in the witness stand and he said, how have I wearied you? And our question and response in verse 6 is what? What do you want from me, God? What do you want from me? That classic line in the middle of every argument where you're just totally frustrated. Okay. Then in verse 7, we give God a laundry list of ever more impossible things that we're going to sacrifice for him. Okay, God, do you want yearling calves? Do you want thousands of rams? Do you want 10,000 gallons of oil? Is that what you want? Will you be satisfied then? The climax of this extremely exaggerated uh, fest is child sacrifice. I'm going to give you my firstborn. Will you be happy then, God? As you can see, there's a sarcastic tone. And you can imagine a situation where a friend is yelling at you when you're hurt. Right? You've all had this experience at some level. The person goes, you say, hey, I've been hurt by you, here's how. And that person goes, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? Do you want me to go home? Fine. Do you want me to go home and never come back? Done. Do you want me to go and get in a car wreck and die? Is that, would that make everything okay? Okay, maybe you're not that dramatic. But, <laughs> obviously this is not what you want. And clearly, also, this is not what God wants. He doesn't want all this religious hype either. He doesn't want us to burn all of our CDs and to, and to, and to put in a bonfire all the PG-13 movies we watched in our tween years, okay? Just to prove that we like Him. He doesn't need that. Why? Because none of these sacrifices actually look like the kingdom of God. None of them show forth the kingdom of God. Instead, verse 8 tells us exactly what God wants, down to the letter. What is good? What looks like the kingdom of God? What does God require? Verse 8. Do justice. Love kindness or mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. These three requirements of God summarize 613 laws of the Old Testament. They're how we are participate in God's kingdom. And to quote a Jewish scholar and a new favorite, Abraham Heschel, okay, he puts it this way, to live by these laws is to live within time the life of eternity. I'm going to say that again because it's complicated. To live these laws, these three things, is to live within time the life of eternity. That is the kingdom of God's eternity, its majesty, its goodness, its truth, come from and reside in the presence of justice and mercy 
and humility. But if we're honest, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking in humility are as overwhelming as 613 laws to be kept perfectly. Aren't they? When I look around the world, I see all the oppression, all the injustice, all the corruption, all of the arrogance leaking from more holes than I have time or fingers and toes to fill. What do we do? Let me just give you a statistic. Five years old. In 2008, there were more than 27 million people in slavery. More than 27 million people in slavery. Over 2 million children were forced into prostitution. And somewhere around 75% of the prisoners in the developing nations of the world had not even been convicted or charged with a crime. And that was five years ago, before the worldwide recession. It can only be more. But in the face of these staggering numbers, I'm again thankful for a man named C.S. Lewis, who solves most of my preaching problems. <laughs> in an essay called Why I'm Not a Pacifist, Lewis approaches the overwhelming face, the sheer number and difficulty of kingdom work beautifully. He writes this, I have received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering completely. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives, such as the abolition of the slave trade or prison reform or factory acts or tuberculosis, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice or universal health or universal peace. This is what Lewis says. I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as well as we can. This is more useful than all the proposals for universal peace that have ever been made. Then to drive his point home, Lewis lifts up the dentist, a dentist who can stop one toothache. Here he says is a greater human being, a greater contributor to the world than all those who have some scheme for producing an entirely healthy human race. One dentist who fills one filling, who corrects one cavity. Point taken. Point taken. So let me do this. Let me offer a few ways we can work quietly away at limited objectives, tackling immediate evil. Let me take Lewis to heart. Here are a few applications of how we can do the daily dentistry. How we can do the daily dentistry of justice and of mercy of humility. Okay, a few applications and I'll, then I'll be done. By the way, I'm getting a lot of help from an REF guy named Ben Robertson and a uh, Mercy Ministry guru named Joel Hammernick. We can talk about that more at Village if you want. Okay, first, doing justice is about giving people what they deserve. That's a great definition. It's not mine, so I can say it's great. Doing justice is giving people what they deserve. In the kingdom of God, everyone deserves to live freely and everyone deserves to live with dignity. So doing justice on a community level looks like trying to learn about and confront the oppression behind someone's poverty or behind someone being trapped. Okay? Maybe it's unaffordable housing or maybe it's a lack of jobs or maybe it's an immigration issue or maybe it's family abuse. 
Whatever the case, we must ask, how can we help with our limited time and our limited resources? Maybe we start painting a house this Saturday. Maybe, just maybe, we begin to volunteer to soup kitchen regularly with RUF every few weeks. And maybe when we're there, filling in those short-term needs, we start to ask a few good questions about the long-term causes behind these short-term needs. Second, if doing justice is about giving people what they do deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve. So if doing justice is about giving people what they do deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve. In the kingdom of God, everybody deserves to live freely and with dignity, even if that person is at fault for the subhuman way that they live. Okay? So loving mercy on a community level looks like encountering and entering tragedies. Whether those are self-inflicted addictions or whether they're natural disasters, like Superstorm Sandy. How can we help at NMSU? Well, there's a lot of self-interest here. Everyone's studying and trying to get the grades to keep their scholarships. But what about the girl next to you in class? What about the girl who's failing, who never shows up? What can you do to help her? Or what about the random roommate that housing assigns you? Who's about to drop out of school because he's lonely? Will you give him the friendship he needs to stay in college? What sh- well, should you do any of these things? Do they deserve your help? No. They don't. But that's exactly what mercy is. Giving people help who don't deserve it. That's what loving mercy means. Third, finally, if doing justice is about giving people what they do deserve, loving mercy is about giving people what they don't deserve, walking humbly with your God is recognizing, I don't deserve any of it. Okay? Walking humbly with your God is, is recognizing, I don't deserve any of it. In the kingdom of God, even you and even I deserve to live freely and with dignity. You see, walking humbly is not only one of the hardest of the three commands, because walking in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament means the whole of one's life. To dedicate the whole of one's life to humility. Walking with humility, though, is essential to doing justice and loving mercy. You can't do it. You can never be able to do justice. You'll never be able to love mercy with the right motives unless we walk with God as a crutch. Unless he empowers us. Look, without Jesus' forgiveness for our unwillingness to go there, we'll never actually try again to do justice. We'll never actually try again to love mercy fully. Without the Holy Spirit's power working inside of us, we can never actually love mercy. We can never actually change our hearts in such a way to love mercy. We can't do it. We need the Spirit to do it for us. We need Him to give us the courage to show up and do justice. And so walking humbly at a community level looks like confronting the wrongs behind our messes, both our messes and other people's messes. It looks like walking and leading with a limp of repentance. It looks like walking 
and leading with a limp of repentance. And from this posture, it looks like befriending people that you have, want to have nothing to do with. It looks like looking at people who have more problems than a math book and saying, that's my best buddy. Why? Because you have more problems than a math book and so do I. And that's what humility means. Because you know you're troubled and you know you need Jesus, you slowly tell that person about how Jesus changes people. So, what's good? What does God want from us? What's God's happy place? Is it a vision of lingerie and beer and slot machines and midgets? No. It's a vision of justice and mercy and humility. This is what God has rescued us towards. This is what God wants us to share in his happy place together with him. To live and to work and to love in God's kingdom. That space wherever we are, that time whenever we are. What would it look like for God's justice, for God's mercy, and for our humility to spread on this campus to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea? It would look like the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, it's a lot to take in, um, as I say every week. (laughs) And I pray, Father, that you would move our spirits, that you would help us to see, Jesus, that you're intimately involved with the details of loving people. That you don't just give us the how, but you give us the why. You don't just give us the what to do, you give us the reason to do it. That, Jesus, you died on the cross and you saved us from our sin so that we could go and be ambassadors to other people so that we could go and fight sin. Fight sin in ourselves and fight sin in others. And I pray, Father, that that would be um, a truth that as we look around, as we walk to our classes, as we lay in our dorm rooms, as as we go home, that you would sit in our hearts, that your spirit would encourage us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.